This is Saving the Game, a Christian podcast about tabletop role-playing and collaborative storytelling. Recorded Thursday, November 16th of 2017, it's episode 121. In this episode, part one of our discussion of battered group syndrome, plus our favorite polyhedral dice, plugs for some other excellent podcasts, the Funcilitator, and more. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Grant. I'm Peter. And I'm Jenny. And we're back. How's everybody? Uh, doing pretty well. How about you? Good. Jenny? Eh. The last two days I've been kind of dealing with a nasty headache, but other than that, I'm fine. Mm. It's one of those ones where it feels like there is a finger pressing on my temple. It doesn't really hurt anymore, but it's just like, I'm tired of this finger pressing on my temple. <laughs> Those are the worst. Like, you bend yeah. over and it hurts a lot, but otherwise it's just a mm-hmm. little pressure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, those are bad. Yeah, I've I've been dealing with um, my wife who's been a bit sick and uh, my older child who's a bit sick. She missed her first day of school. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. She was very sad. Mm. But she was running a fever and having nightmares, entirely reasonable nightmares, I should stress, that kept her from sleeping well. Oh, yeah. Ugh. Somebody showed her a, a music video for a, a class or something. It was uh, Carnival of the Animals. And in this this music video, in amongst all the other stuff, there's this horrifying picture of like a man in a suit, but he's got a deer for a head, and the deer has these enormous, creepy anime eyes. Oh, okay. And okay. yeah, it is Uncanny Valley Unknown Armies illustration material it's mm-hmm. actually awful so she's been having nightmares about this yeah, i took a look at it sounds like, reasonable <laughs> i'm gonna have nightmares thanks child who showed <laughs> you this yeah, and why why would they show a child this yeah so she she's been having some issues with that again normal five-year-old stuff but mm-hmm. yeah we've been putting up with that and an illness yeah. but for once i'm healthy aside from a very slight sniffle yay huh that never happens <laughs> Anyway, we got a couple of things to uh, plug real quick before we get into our topic. And our topic's going to be kind of meaty tonight, so I do want to get into it quickly. Yeah. We're talking, as we mentioned last episode, about battered group syndrome, the idea of uh, groups that have struggled with many bad GMing habits in the past and, and now have built up some terrible habits of their own kind of as a defense or reaction to that and what a GM can do to smooth those out and fix them and help that group heal. But before we do that, I want to plug two podcasts, podcast episodes in one case specifically. First, I put this in the show notes last time, but I don't recall actually mentioning it on air. I was recently on the Gameable Saturday Morning podcast with our old friend uh, Chris Newton, and I was talking about ExoSquad, a classic 92-93 American cartoon that basically attempted to be a Western-produced anime And is a sci-fi allegory for the European campaign in World War II, complete with Hitler and Holocaust parallels and blue aliens and strange psychic powers and mechs and pirates and kind of a weird militaristic ideology. And after Mm. listening to this lengthy, awesome thing, I went out and bought the first season on DVD. (laughs) Yeah. So I'll link those again in the show notes in case you missed them for whatever reason. Uh, They were a lot of fun to record. There's a chance. I don't know when this is, this one's going to drop, but I also did uh, some bonus content. I don't know if that's going to appear on 
the Gameable Saturday morning feed, the Mega Dumbcast feed, or somewhere else, if it appears at all, because Chris's computer was having problems when we recorded it. But if that shows up, I'll link that there as well. Just a, a quick note on this before we move on. If you have never heard any of the stuff that we have done with the Gameable folks, I don't think there's another podcast out there that we have a better ongoing relationship, except maybe Game Store Profits. And we certainly haven't crossed over with Game Store Profits as much as we have with the Gameable podcast. It's it's like adding extra regular host to whichever podcast is being crossed over with. For some reason, we tend to get very lengthy whenever we talk to them, but it always turns out well. And they're just really nice people and stuff. So I personally think some of the best content that we've ever produced has been in conjunction with them. And I think it's very worth listening to. Yeah. Uh, honestly, just go listen to their whole backlog if you haven't already. You deserve Although it. it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a while because, my goodness, are they ever prolific. <laughs> yeah, they really are. The other one I want to plug, and this one is in some ways even more interesting, is a little podcast that Mike Perna, actually, of Game Store Profits, clued me in on called Min Max. Min Max Podcast. You can just search for Min slash Max Podcast on iTunes or Google or whatever, and it comes right up. This is another Christian podcast about role-playing games and storytelling. Yay, we're Hooray! not the only one! <laughs> Been doing this for five and a half years, and somebody else has finally jumped on. Uh, we've had one or two people come try and do one before, and then I think quickly pod faded, as near as I can tell. But these guys have stuck around. They've been doing it for over 25 episodes, I believe, uh, six months, and they are really good. I've been binging on their backlog and enjoying every bit of it. It's well-produced. They are very funny. They have a lot of very deep discussion that the humor sort of leavens. They're really good, and so I very strongly recommend them. I will link them in the show notes. If you enjoy our show, you will enjoy their show. I'll just straight up say that. And I believe they reached out to us recently, didn't they? So, um, kinda. Uh, they at least were like, oh, hey, y'all exist. That's neat. I've kind of reached out to them. We'll see what comes of that. At least we're all aware of each other now. So yeah. Yes, and that's, that's it. And uh, interestingly, they were excited because they had heard about the Bodana group. Mike had you know, reviewed them or something like that. And um, they were very excited because, of course, Mike is on the board of the Bodana group. Mike noticed us, Mike Senpai, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was pretty cool. And it's, it's nice seeing other people get excited about Mike Perna, who is obviously awesome, and Derek White who they were also very excited about, and the Bodana group, who, of course, we all know is awesome. So, yep, yeah. I mean, when other people are excited about friends of ours, it kind of makes us feel good. It's <laughs> warm and fuzzy inside. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Jenny, Peter, anything y'all want to plug real quick? Not in particular. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Let's get into our Patreon topic and our scripture, and then our big, big topic here. Okay, this is from Kevin Von Felt. What is your favorite polyhedral die and why? D12 rolls real nice. Next question. <laughs> uh, That's a good one. Probably D8. I just kind of like the the shape and I don't know, it seems to be a very useful die in a lot of D&D games and stuff. I play a cleric. It's my hit points and my weapon. What can I say? <laughs> there is that. And my healing spells. It's also the D12 for me, but it's not only because it rolls so well, although it does roll well. It's the perfect balance between like a satisfying roll and not running off the table the way a D20 does. Yeah. 
or worse. You ever seen one of the uh, the D100s that's a sphere instead of two dice? Yeah. <laughs> it's basically just a ball. Um, yeah, it's a golf ball. The divots are numbers. Basically. Mm-hmm. But huge and easily lost somehow. Anyway, the D12, the, th- the reason I love it so much is because I, I enjoy playing around with numbers and math. And it's satisfying in the same way that a clock is very satisfying because it divides up so neatly in so many interesting ways. You know, you can divide it by two, you divide it by three, you divide it by four, you can divide it by six. And so you can get all sorts of different patterns and result sets out of it. It's just mathematically satisfying. Hmm. That's a good reason. That was maybe the best question to ask on a day that we have a big topic for. So, Kevin. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Kevin. <laughs> thank you, Kevin. <laughs> good job making my polyhedral die roll the way you wanted it to. I did not fudge that die roll. As we'll t- and we'll be talking about <laughs> fudging dice in a bit. <laughs> all right. Scripture? I guess I'll take Psalms. Go for it. This is Psalm 51, 10 through 13. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take the Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. So this is Proverbs chapter 25, verses 18 through 20. Like a club or a sword or a sharp arrow is one who gives false testimony against a neighbor. Like a broken tooth or a lame foot is reliance on the unfaithful in a time of trouble. Like one who takes away a garment on a cold day, or like vinegar poured on a wound, is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. And Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we're talking tonight, as we said at the top of the show, about battered group syndrome. The idea that A group can be so damaged by having a bad GM and developing bad habits that it becomes toxic and defensive and has habits that a good GM has to work to overcome and fix and that players who want to improve their gaming experience have to overcome and fix. We're going to be talking about this mostly from the perspective of a GM taking over a group that exhibits these patterns and problems. Know, however, that A lot of these can be applied from the player's side, or they can be pulled in from the player's side, and you can tell a unhealthy GM who doesn't know that they're behaving badly that these are behaviors they ought to adopt. A good conversation with a GM who isn't actively being cruel, but who maybe just doesn't understand how they are not necessarily GMing well, is a good thing to have, and suggesting these and and encouraging them to take on these traits is probably a good idea. Also, some of these are just good GMing habits. They're not necessarily medicine that you stop taking once the treatment is done. They're just good habits to get into. Mm -hmm. And preventative medicine is the best medicine. Yeah. Yes, very true. (laughs) You'll kind of notice it as we go along. One of the kind of the most overarching pieces of advice that this is going to boil down to is the best way to not have a bad group is to have a good group. Mm -hmm. And I know that sounds like cheap and trite, but a lot of like the advice that circulates around from experienced gamers and podcasts and that sort of thing about how to have a 
healthy, happy group. If you just apply that from the get go, you'll probably never need some of what we have here in the first place. Mm-hmm. That's true. Uh, having said that, if you've dug yourself into a hole or you've come up to a group that is in a hole and you want to help them out, this is how you get started with that. So let's talk about kind of that discovery period when you are trying to understand what is making this group so toxic. Here are a couple of things that you ought to look out for. Symptoms, if you will, of battered group syndrome. The first and most obvious and probably most prevalent one is paranoia. Not the system, not the game yeah. necessarily. Yeah. But- oh, no, I'm going to say the system too. Anybody who plays paranoia, no, uh, I'm, I'm kidding, obviously. I love paranoia. I, I had that great story about it from Bob Aaron's. It, it's a fun system if you know your, what you're getting into. Anyway, yeah. um, players tend to be paranoid when they've suffered under a arbitrary or antagonistic GM for a long period of time. Characters will be, frankly, uninteresting because character hooks and the, the idea of a hook is that it's something that you can attach story to. Right. Well, oftentimes for a antagonistic GM or a cruel GM, that is something you can hook a character with and pull them in a direction the player doesn't want to take them or something you can catch that player with and hurt their uh, character with and thus the player with in some way. You ever find a character who has no backstory or the most bulletproof backstory in the world with no uh, NPCs and no connections because that way they're safe and the GM can't hurt them. That's what we're talking about. Yeah, you you actually Mm -hmm. see that often enough where it's kind of a stereotype. Yeah. Yes. And I think often bad GMs make that a player problem, but it's learned behavior. It's defensive. Yeah. Conversely, if you um, if you have a group where you walk in and everybody's got all of these developed backstories with lots of interesting NPCs and stuff, there's probably a good chance that they haven't had the adversarial problem. So that's yeah. a nice sign to see. Yeah, exactly. Of course, you know, if there's a certain nihilism in the group about, well, this character isn't going to last a long time anyway because the GM kills characters left and right, you may just get a class some name i guess yeah and the bare minimum of backstory you know a quickly scribbled archetype because why get attached if you're not going to have the character within three sessions mm-hmm. yeah if if the game is going to proceed like a roguelike roguelike video games can be a lot of fun but when i was playing darkest dungeon or not darkest dungeon um dungeons of dreadmore i think i probably used the same name for 20 characters in a row because they weren't gonna, they weren't gonna make it past level eight or nine, most likely. You know, yes. Yeah. You you just kind of you get creativity fatigue if you have to keep coming up with names for things that aren't really going to matter. Yeah. Another common feature of this sort of paranoia is characters who are created or quickly acquire some sort of built-in protection against certain GM screw tactics. Oh, my character can't be charmed. I'm always making elves because they can't be charmed because the GM loves charming characters and making them do embarrassing, cruel, agency robbing things. Uh, Characters can't be mind controlled. They're, you know, they're robots. So mind control magic doesn't work on them because I know the GM will have random NPCs randomly do mind control magic. Things like that. Yeah. Um, You know, I make characters with extremely high armor classes so that, you know, the random sniper the GM likes to have doesn't do anything, so on and so forth. Or my character has every single healing spell in the book for the purpose of avoiding or countering any kind of damage, specifically continual damage, thrown at them. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah. Remember the wandering damage we talked about last session? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or lots of like various different defensive ones rather than anything interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's a good one. Another one that I think you see pretty commonly, and again, this looks like problematic player behavior, but remember, we're talking about stuff that is learned. Yeah. Every NPC gets killed almost instantly, especially once it seems like their usefulness is done. Well, that sounds terrible, right? Like, that sounds like a real player problem. But if every non-player character is going to betray the party at some point, why let them live? Yeah. Why leave a trail of living enemies behind you to mess with you more if that's what you're used to? You know, mm-hmm. it's, you hear a lot of complaining in kind of the, the greater Internet community about murder hobo players, but that behavior can be learned mm-hmm. and it can also be unlearned, which is what we're kind of talking about here. Yeah. I think it's also important to note that when we look at an action from the player's point of view, we have to take into consideration why they are doing the thing. Because I have seen a mindset where it is the murder hobo and it's just like, I'm just going to kill every NPC so that I can get all of the XP and all of the XP will be mine. And that's a very selfish mindset. But if you ask a player, hey, why did you kill that NPC? And they're like, well, they were going to turn on us anyway, right? That's where... That is absolutely a symptom of battered group syndrome. Like, yeah, no question. It's really important to look at the motivations behind the PC's actions. Yeah. And if they can't or don't feel comfortable articulating those, there may be something to look into there. Another classic example is um, just not taking risks like, oh, this thing is slightly more powerful than us. Avoid it with extreme prejudice or kill it with extreme prejudice. Big, dramatic overreactions to something that may not necessarily be threatening, but the assumption is that it is threatening. Yeah. Never, ever letting your guard down is a big red flag. If you've got parties that want to sleep in their armor that assign two or three people to watch while one person sleeps, that sort of thing, that is definitely learned behavior. Yeah. Yeah. And that sort of overcaution extends beyond combat. Check everything for traps. Check the chest. Check the room. Check the inn. Yeah, check your own armor after you take it off. Yeah. If you ever take it off, you know? It's like... Yeah, if this is something the GM is constantly doing, well, sure, players are going to learn to expect that. And they'll Mm -hmm. try and defend themselves as best they can. Mm -hmm. Outside of paranoia, or at least this sort of in-character paranoia, directly avoiding plot is sort of a form of paranoia, but it's a Mm -hmm. learned avoidance response. If you avoid plot because plot is where bad things happen, then that suggests that maybe your plots are always just screw you gambits. Yeah, and I think this is where a lot of complaints about railroading from both sides come from. Yeah. Okay, so Grant, you mentioned previously, I think it may have even been last episode, that you're a little bit concerned that the D&D game has been a little more railroady than you'd like. Here and there. Not all yeah. the time. I know there are times when it's not been, but lately I feel like it has been just a touch. Yeah, and my response to that was, yeah, but it's it's all been interesting. It's all been fun. It hasn't felt like a huge screw job. You know, it's like, oh, how to put this? Like, sitting down to play a JRPG, which I know you're a fan of, right? Is uh, basically, sometimes. well... Yeah. The better ones, like the Final Fantasy ones. X yeah. or Six, like you've, sure, you've sure, talked sure. about repeatedly. That's basically consenting to get on a plot railroad. There's not a lot of choice in a lot of those. No, that's very true. Like, sometimes the world opens up at the end, but yeah, not always. Yeah, the first always. act or two, at least, are going to be very linear. You might, oh, you might get to... 
choose what you say to somebody in some context, but it's not going to meaningfully affect the plot. Right, because there's a specific plot that they and a story that they are trying to tell. It's a movie where you get to look for chests in the corners. Yeah, and frankly, that's fine as long as the whole game isn't a massive screw you job, right? I mean, yeah, and as long as it's an interesting story. Yeah, it, an interesting story that you follow along with is an interesting story you follow along with. If it's if it's boring or if it just you know if it makes you feel like it's just going to grind you up constantly with nothing positive given back that's where people start really getting plot avoidant yeah yeah thank yeah. you <laughs> I, I will i will contradict you a little bit in that i think even if the gm is telling a good story there needs to be some in fact plenty of player agency because the players need to be able to direct the story as well absolutely it's i i'm not meaning to suggest that the player shouldn't be active participants because they should be. It's even even the best told story that you don't have any agency in at all is really better as like a novel or a video game than a tabletop role playing session. But if you've got like a string of um, interesting stuff kind of laid out, that's most likely going to occur in a specific order, but how the PCs react to it deal with it, the consequences from it, those are all up to the players to discover. Well, then, yeah, I mean, it might be, you know, planned out in advance and somewhat railroady on those merits, but they still get to meaningfully affect the world, the story, each other, you know, that's well, and the, if they can affect future encounters, maybe even, you know, skip one or, you know, make thing make me change that. I am totally fine with that. Yeah, sure. I may have to go race and invent something new, but a, it doesn't negate anything that's going on in the original location, and B, hey, that's cool, we're telling a story, and you guys have taken narrative control for a bit and said, hey, this story we are telling is happening over here with this other thing, and yeah. that's avoiding railroading. But you're right that if, hey, guys, the plot is this way, is a sure sign that it's just going to be miserable over there, then you have a problem. Yeah. Speaking mm -hmm. of misery, rules lawyering. First of all, fantastic unstable card. Second, um, <laughs> magic in joke. A few people will get yeah. that. Sorry. Rules lawyering sometimes is pedantry. Okay, let's be clear. Sometimes players and GMs just like to argue. Yep. Mm -hmm. And there are players who like to try and find every single advantage they can. But sometimes rules lawyering is I need every advantage I can because the GM will only respect a clearly laid out rules argument. If I give them any leeway at all, they will screw me. Or sometimes I have to straight up lie about the rules and convince the GM it's something else because otherwise I will be screwed. I had that happen to me in a game once Ugh. where I, I had to just come up with some nonsense in order to not get completely hosed. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and it's not fun. Quick note, my definition of rules lawyering versus kind of being a rules sage or a rules expert, if you are only arguing in favor of your character or as the GM, something that hurts the players, you are rules lawyering, okay? If you can't look at a rule and say, no, you know what, in this case, it applies in a way that negatively affects me, you know, it hurts me procedurally or dramatically, and that's fine, you're not analyzing the rules in a neutral manner. Yeah, if you are the person who... Whenever somebody asks, hey, how does X, Y, or Z work, and you have the answer to that in an impartial manner or at least know where to look for it, then you're just an expert or a sage. Yeah, and that's fine. Good. Desirable. <laughs> yeah, people like mastering systems, but if it's always, well, the rules are whatever makes me succeed better, that's a problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Last one, 
Avoidance behavior that's based around creepiness or threatening behavior at the table. This may be up to and including avoiding gaming entirely. This may be only playing certain games that don't allow certain behaviors or certain settings. This is kind of a broad array of avoidance behaviors, but it's something to look out for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think um, even though it's not really in our outline, I think pretty much any kind of endemic avoidance behavior at the table is a dead giveaway. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. So these are symptoms. Let's talk about the initial treatment, the first aid, that magic hour. What do we do to start solving this problem? First thing I'm going to suggest is changing the game. Groups like this often tend to be stuck playing a particular system because that's what they're comfortable with, it's what they've always played, so on and so forth. Try something different. Something less GM-centric is often a good idea. You know, a drama system game, a fiasco game, a fate game, anything along those lines. It doesn't necessarily have to be light. It can be a crunchy game as long as the tone and rules are very different. It's sort of like quitting smoking in a way. Jenny, I don't know if these ads ran in Canada, but they certainly ran in the U.S. Anti-smoking ads that were like, you know, you don't always drink when you smoke, but you always smoke when you drink. Mm. We have much more threatening ones. Our uh, cigarette containers have pictures of lung cancer on them. They have uh, pictures of kids looking at a parent smoking, saying children see, children do, stuff like that. Um, Ours are a lot more threatening. We are actually not allowed to advertise cigarettes or uh, portray them in a way that is positive. It has to be incredibly negative. And we aren't allowed to have them out in the open either. They are behind shutters, like... um, Completely opaque shutters, so you can't even see. Right. Yeah, things are a little looser here, although many of the advertising standards are actually the same. Okay. Uh, And media appearance stuff, that sort of thing. But these were anti-smoking ads that anti-smoking groups put together. And the thing is, it's very true. You know, I've known people who don't smoke, except when they do these certain habitual behaviors. Because when they do that behavior, they always smoke. And that's their habit. Hmm. Gaming and bad habits can be the same way. I don't always act like a jerk, but when I play D&D 3rd uh, Edition, I'm always a power gamer. And this yeah. is actually true. I become a much worse player when playing D&D 3.5 or Pathfinder mm. versus any other system. I have certain bad habits in character creation and playstyle that are tied to that headspace. Hmm. Breaking out of those habits or breaking out of those systems, changing, changing the environment I am in means I don't have those habit triggers and I can learn to play better. Even running D&D 5th edition, it's D&D, right? We're still rolling D20s, but I'm a much better GM and player in D&D 5th edition than I would be in 3.5. Yeah. Now, (laughs) some of that credit goes to the game designers who meticulously excised a lot of toxicity out of the system but yeah there's a lot of stuff that you don't have to do and there's a lot less temptation to power game and things like that i mean that that's fine but also i'm not playing that game that is how i used to play when i was a young stupid kid playing under bad gms like that really terrible game i mentioned have i told this story about this awful game where i didn't have a single stat under 60 and you have yes Yeah, yeah 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 that game The one where you got up and said you were free when you died? Yeah, exactly. That was a terrible game. And I had another D&D game that went on for much longer, which was not as bad, but built up some bad habits. If I go back to 3.5, all of that comes rushing back in. It's interesting. So Mm -hmm. try a different system. I do think something that is 
less GM centric is a good idea. Something where you share narrative control, where the players feel like they have agency is a very valuable tool, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that if for whatever reason you can't get hold of one of those or your group just refuses to play because you story games or whatever. Okay, so while we're on that, I had two things in, in the outline, and they kind of went unchallenged in the outline, but I'd be interested in explicitly hearing what you guys have to say about this. I think um, if you're having a situation where you're dealing with a lot of avoidant behavior, it might be somewhat healing to, A, sit down and play something that's explicitly cooperative for the whole table, like mm -hmm. break out Pandemic and play that together. Um, I think so that's a... That's everybody's valid. on the same mm -hmm. side. Pandemic is a fantastic game and it's it's not hard to do this, but just yeah. play until you win a game because the game's going to beat you a couple of times. It just is. Pandemic is tough. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, there's nobody to blame for that. Yeah. yeah. It's just. Yeah. It's just. It's just pandemic. the way the cards were dealt. Yeah. And then the other thought that I had was if you're used to things that are hosey, um, sit down and collaboratively develop the setting for your next game using microscope so everybody gets a voice in it and you can kind of address some of your own personal pet peeves in the at the setting design level. Yeah, so that gets yeah. into, I think, um, giving players narrative control during the game, right? As mm -hmm. much as the system permits, maybe a little bit more. I think collaborative setting development is a great way to start that off because the players are not stuck with the GM's story. They know a lot about the setting ahead of time because they've helped create it and they have contributed things that they want to see in that setting. There are parts of it they own. It's a shared collaborative story from the get-go. Yeah. I'd really mm -hmm. like to do that with our group sometime just because I think it sounds like fun. <laughs> oh, yeah. I actually want to do a superhero game at some point with our group. And I think if we did some microscope creation for that, that could be pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think that would be awesome, especially since I think we all have slightly different views of what a superhero is. And yeah. I think you'd get a really rich and like highly textured setting if you did that. I think so, too. As far as narrative control goes, I think there are a few other things you can do to hand narrative control out to the players as much as you possibly can. We talked about this a bit before, but like when a player has a tough or important success, a natural 20, they land a killing blow, whatever it is, those are big upbeats for the players. We talked about this last episode. Make sure those are narrated by the players rather than the GM and don't over narrate that success into some sort of failure. Mm -hmm. Or at the very least, give them the option to, you know, if yeah. you're like, yeah. hey, you know, how do you do this? And the player is kind of like, uh, 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 something awesome happens. I, I don't <laughs> know. You can be like, all right, here's what happens. Tell me if this is OK. And, you know, take it from there. But give them give them the chance, you know. Tell me if this is OK is a key phrase. Use that mm -hmm. a lot. Yeah. Even if you have to narrate something, the player always has the option to say, uh, no, I don't like that. Uh, hold on. Or even better, it can lead into one of those things where you are constantly building on each other. And those back and forths between the GM and, and the player describing a scene, those are my favorite parts of role playing in general. Oh, man, those virtuous cycles are the best. Yes. And of course, if the players do it without the GM getting involved at all, then you have won. Yeah. <laughs> As the GM, you yeah, have if won. If the players are doing that without you getting involved, you have a very, very simple set of tasks in front of you. You smile. And you, you just sit, sit back, back and you bask in the awesomeness <laughs> until it exactly. slows down. There are a few other things along these lines, but I think we're going to hit them individually. One thing mm -hmm. that might be interesting 
I think it is potentially dangerous, but something to think about. Try doing like a round robin GMing game or something where other players get to GM. And I think this does a couple of things. First, it says, hey, as the GM, I don't always have to be in the driver's seat. I'm fine giving up the throne that the GM sits in for a little while because I'm not power hungry and mad. Also, it may kind of help you see what sort what people expect from a GM, because you know how children copy their parents? You know, it's like what we were just talking about uh, with the smoking ads, Jenny, what children see children do. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's true of everyone. If certain behaviors have been modeled as the way things go, well, when it's other people's turn to replicate them, they're going to play that way. They're going to act that way. You know, one of the things that's that's kind of big along these lines, I think, is a lot of harsher GMs do not allow any sort of take back at all. If you mm, blurt something out and then you immediately think better of it and say, wait, wait, no, I don't do that. They're like, nope. First thing you said is what happens and they will just hammer you for yeah. that. Or like every single every single thing you say is in character. Oh, you laughed at an inopportune moment. Oh, ho, ho, ho. yeah. You said you needed to use the bathroom while well, that was in character. And now you've made a faux pas. You know, what yeah. is this smartphone you speak of? Yeah. Yeah. Don't do that. <laughs> no, don't be don't be a jerk. Even, but you're right. Even LARPs don't do that. Remember when we had Sarah on and she was talking about needing to be able to break away from it and stuff? Yeah. Yeah, even LARPs don't do that. So don't do it at your gaming table. There's there's not that much to be gained by it. Yeah. But I think the take back thing is important. First of all, I think a lot of GMs who are trying to be adversarial, like it's not even the first thing out of their mouth. It's the worst thing out of the player's mouth is what they latch onto. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but second, you're right. Take backs, the opportunity to get it right and feel like you're not wasting your time or stuck with something you didn't think through all the way is invaluable. Yeah. Saying things like, look, you can try if you really want to, but that's going to be very hard and very dangerous rather than ha ha ha, you're screwed is way better. Yeah, you know? exactly. And again, this comes back to being the biggest fan of the players. You want to be on the player's side, even as you are presenting them obstacles to overcome or shaping the narrative in particular ways based on whatever the game requires. You are still there to make sure the players have fun. You are hosting. You are the entertainment you, for these could you Could you say that you're the fun facilitator? <laughs> No, no, you could not. <laughs> I wish I was sorrier about that today. Jay, I need you to get a box, write timeout on it, and just sit in it for a little bit. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm legit. Jenny's sorry being now. sent to the pun box. <laughs> yes, yes. We haven't had the pun uh, box in probably a year and a half, at least. No, that was. Jenny has brought it back. I'm not going to say that was good, but I am laughing. So yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Pun facilitator. <laughs> I'm putting that on your next batch of business cards. Fun facilitator. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's the sort of thing that would actually look better on a business card than said out loud. The fun facilitator. <laughs> that yeah. looks like exactly the sort of uh, out of touch corporate nonsense that somebody would come up with. Yeah. Or, you know, like an ironic reference to that sort of thing. On yeah. I wish. No, it, <laughs> on a business pocket? card, it looks okay, exactly yeah. like, you know, 17 pieces of flair. Yeah. No, you're, yeah. you're right. I, I thought about it a little further and you're you're. You're entirely right. It it hurts, but you're right. Yeah. Oh, it hurts. It hurt a lot. Anyway, facilitation aside, um, 
Ugh, good grief, Jenny! I'm gonna be I'm I'm gonna be shaking my head about that all night. <laughs> <laughs> you got me. I admit it. Just wait until Chrissy inevitably gets a hold of that. <laughs> I'm so glad she doesn't listen to these episodes. Oh, oh boy! Although she's okay. been threatening to start. I was gonna say that'll give you a reprieve until maybe Saturday evening. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Anyway. Um. You're right. The GM I, should be the the player's biggest fan. That's where we started. Yes. And that's exactly it. And if the player blurts something out and this is, oh, wait, 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 that's real dumb. Let them take it back. I mean, mm-hmm. seriously, it seems obvious, but some some people just don't do that. And I think showing that you're not trying to just hose them and it's not a gotcha game will go a long way. Uh, something that I think is very important is handling bad die rolls or bad decisions characters and players follow through with. The classic one, PCs drop to zero hit points, or they have all their wounds, or whatever. Rather than a character straight up dying, eh, they get knocked out and are in a worse situation, but they aren't gone. Bad rolls or critical failures, they are not immediate moments for the GM to come up with the worst possible way to screw a character or kill off a character. Rather, they create additional obstacles, specifically obstacles the player's then have agency to overcome. There's a specific example I want to touch on here. We got the name of this whole episode, Battered Group Syndrome, from a Fear the Boot episode of the same name, and I'll make sure to link that in the show notes. Fear the Boot's episode used an example of a Shadowrun PC who critically botched a roll to throw a grenade twice. They threw it, it bounced back to them, the PC picked it up, threw it again, and botched again, and it bounced back to them. At which point the GM, who was kind of trying to learn to be a better GM but hadn't really made it there yet and was actually on the episode, which was interesting, uh, said, well, buddy, there's nothing I can do. I disagree that there is nothing that they could have done. And the suggestions that were thrown around on the episode were things like, well, the grenade's a dud. And then you say, well, now other equipment is a dud, right? Oh, what's going on? But that starts to feel like a GM screw job where the GM has secretly done something to the players. The GM is arbitrarily deciding that your equipment doesn't work. That doesn't feel like a great solution for a group that's already suspicious of the GM. So here's my solution to that situation. We have said, okay, the botch has happened. Well, the botch does not mean the the grenade falls at your feet. Instead, it means the grenade lands where you threw it, maybe, or like in between you and your targets and is sitting there sparking and isn't going off. It's going to go off. You're sure of it. And they're sure of it, and you're all staring at it, but it's not going off. So now you have an obstacle. Maybe it's going to go off sometime. Who knows? You can't go that way anymore, though. That part is blocked off because who knows when that grenade's going to go off. But at the same time, the bad guys don't want to go that way either. So now you have to find a different way around to your target because this is Shadowrun. You're trying to get somewhere in whatever facility this is. All right, uh, maybe this was our way out, and now we got to find a different way out. But The bad guys can't give chase because they don't want to walk over a grenade that could go off literally any moment either. So we're going to head off and they're going to head off and we'll see what happens. You've created an obstacle. You haven't taken away any agency and the bad role has affected the group and created a new situation. But it hasn't said you roll badly. Looks like you get to stop having fun for the night. Yeah. Instead, what that says is you roll badly. So now things get interesting. Yeah. That kind of consequence creation is an invaluable tool for a GM. Failure is one of those things that our group is very sensitive about due to certain situations we have had in the past. 
<laughs> and so I, I try and kind of handle those carefully, and I try and come up with alternate consequences a fair bit, rather than the strict procedural consequences of failure. Maybe there are dramatic consequences, you know, relationships suffer instead of a PC hurting themselves or something dumb. Or relationships get more complex. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the best example I can think of you doing this is the Arrow incident, which I've blogged about, but I'm not sure I've ever described on the mics. Can I take a couple of seconds or do we not have time? No, we can go ahead. I'm not sure that was a bad die roll per se, but it is an interesting... Oh, uh, it's kind of an example of the sort of GMing technique that you want to use in this kind of a situation anyways. Fair enough. The, uh, the Arrow incident was... We're off exploring, our party's off exploring um, a part of the island that we hadn't been to before. And we discovered like this massive, like, what was it, about 12 feet wide track where the vegetation had just been cleared uh, down to the ground. Feet, yeah. Okay. And we were kind of looking at each other like, well, this isn't good. So we all kind of pulled out, a, you know, our weapons and stuff and started very cautiously following this thing. And we get to the end of it and there is this massive beetle just gnawing its way through the forest this unbelievably slow moving inattentive non-threatening herbivorous thing it's like okay who you know, this isn't some horrible monster or some destructive you know like supernatural force or something this is just a really enormous wood beetle and at that point the fairy dragon meeps a fairy dragon Oh, yeah. Little okay. lurking fairy dragon who yeah. isn't following you around being invisible and being kind of a jerk. Yeah. He decides to start pranking us. So he hits my cleric with a suggestion spell, which because Lambert's a cleric, he's got um, proficiency in wisdom saves and also a hefty wisdom modifier. So he kind of shakes it off. And Grant describes the kind of the <laughs> sensation is like this sudden urge to get on top of this beetle and ride it like a bronco. <laughs> And yeah, because be this is a fairy dragon, he wants you to do something silly because he's trying to have fun. I, By the way, I want to come back on the fact that Meep targeted Lambert with that. Tag that for future discussion. Okay. So anyway, um, because the party is pretty trusting and communicative with each other, Lambert kind of looks at the other two players and kind of scratching his head describes that. And at that point, the giggling starts in the forest. And... Um, Grant's wife's character, the rogue, just like immediately knocks an arrow and fires it into the woods, like in just like one smooth motion, just twang. What we found out later happened was the fairy dragon used like um, ghost sound or some other thing that creates like a phantom sound to make like this agonized scream that runs off into the woods. We, you know, we ran off into there and to investigate things. Found the arrow stuck in a tree, like totally clean. It hadn't passed through anything. And, you know, we kind of stood around and were like, well, what just happened here? And the upshot of that discussion was kind of um, it was a it was a good in character argument. Yeah. And it wasn't super acrimonious, but it was just kind of like a concern. Kind of why did you do that kind of a thing? Chrissy looked um, I, I can't say looked because I couldn't see her through the Internet, but I kind of got the sense of her like turning and looking at me and being like, and now Lambert kind of understands what a different set of assumptions Astor's had to grow up under, doesn't yeah. he? It, it was, was good for was both great. characters. It was, it was fantastic character development. Mm -hmm. And if at any time Grant had just been like, nah, you can't resist the thing and you, you go off and do something silly or he just had the fairy dragon just like fade back into the woods and let us be paranoid or something like that. We would have missed all of that. 
So I, I think that's the kind of GM thinking that you want to do is you you provide just enough where you have a situation. And then once the PCs are really starting to engage with that, particularly if they're starting to engage with each other over it, then you just kind of take your hands off and wait for a good opportunity to come back in. Yeah. By the way, what you said about uh, GM fiat is very important. There's a thing that a lot of bad GMs, adversarial GMs, GMs who enjoy wrecking people's fun, it's something that they do. Which is always making sure that NPCs succeed. Yeah. Or always having omniscient NPCs who always target the best possible target or do anything like that. There's only one character in this group of three who has a good wisdom score and is proficient in wisdom saves. And that's Lambert. Yeah. I made sure that this fairy dragon targeted Lambert for this mind control spell. I rolled it in the open. It, it was a real roll, but the DC was not especially high to resist it, and Lambert had a very good chance of resisting it. The thing is, the sense of what just happened would have been exactly the same whether that succeeded or failed, but it didn't feel like a, oh, of course you're targeting the fighter with the mind control. Yeah. In fact, if it had succeeded, it would have been a little more scary because something took over the cleric's mind for a moment. What in the world is powerful enough to get a hold of the cleric's brain? You know? Right. Yeah. But it doesn't feel like a, a screw job kind of thing, because, again, I rolled it in the open. It's like I rolled a 19. I'm, I'm real sorry. You know, yeah. <laughs> instead of oh, I rolled a three. But, yeah, it still totally succeeds. Yeah. Well, and that kind of leads us into there's a there's another situation. <laughs> I think we should we're ready to get into this long term negatives thing, because there's another situation that just came up in this. And now we're really going to have to rely on the fact that your wife doesn't listen to the podcast because this is information she doesn't have. <laughs> <laughs> that wraps up part one of our discussion of battered group syndrome. But stay tuned for the rest of this conversation in episode 122, when we'll discuss grace and mercy, proper priorities at the gaming table, fudging dice treating this sort of problem long-term, and much more. We'll catch you then, folks. This has been a production of Saving the Game. All episodes are produced and published under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, share-alike license. Our logo is by Ruben Smith Zimple of 3d6design.com. Our music is The Promised Place Beyond the Clouds by James Opie. You can find more of his music at nihilore.com. To hear our past episodes, to find syndication and license details, to connect with our fantastic listener community, or to contact us or support our show through Patreon, visit our website at stgcast.org or savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, do good, and happy gaming.